subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hang on, I'm just gonna let this car go if it, if it decides to. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I'm like on the bottom floor of a hotel and the, the car park is right outside. Ah, no stress. That's been pretty good so far. Leave already. Start the car and just sit there with it on. <laughs> It's the 29th of August, 2019. I'm Benjamin Riley. And I'm Simon Copland. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about Sarah Schulman's book, Conflict is Not Abuse. Ben and I have both recently read the book, Conflict is Not Abuse, and we both loved it. So today we want to do something slightly different, reviewing and analysing what we think is a really important text. In Conflict is Not Abuse, Shulman argues that inflated accusations of harm are increasingly being used, both interpersonally and in political debates, as a way to avoid accountability. Shulman aims to illuminate and describe the difference between conflict and abuse, arguing that what we describe as abuse is frequently actually conflict. Shulman also argues that in instances of conflict, punishment is replacing personal and collective accountability, self-criticism, and reparative approaches to overcoming harm. She argues strongly for more community-based approaches, which tend toward communal healing in instances of conflict. We both think that this book covers a lot of topics we're interested in in this podcast, uh, in particular in relation to identity and vulnerability-based politics. So today we want to dive in and hopefully encourage you to read it as well. So Ben, let's dive right into it. I know you finished the book, I think, while you were overseas, lying on a I beach did, in yes. Thailand. I'm still jealous. I'm just going <laughs> to like, you know, be, bring it up occasionally because I can just like live vicariously for from uh, that trip that you had. Uh, but fair. I think I think on Twitter, Twitter and I think maybe to me later on, you said that it was reparative for you. Um, what did you love about it? What did you find reparative about it? I mean, I kind of loved everything about it. I feel like I'm not someone who tends to have idols, like people I idolize. I feel like just for whatever reason, my personality is not I can really, but I, I love Sarah Schulman. I, I, I really have been a fan of hers ever since I read The Gentrification of the Mind, which is a book she wrote about six or seven years ago about AIDS, the AIDS crisis in New York and the the kind of 
uh, collective forgetting of of that. She's in a lot of ways kind of something I aspire to. I think as a as a thinker and as a writer and as a critic, which, which is this very rare mix of really relentless critique and unflinching critique, but grounded very much in a deep compassion. Yeah, and I think that finding both of those things at once is is frustratingly rare. I I sort of read read her stuff and particularly reading. Conflict is not abuse, and I'm just like, oh my god, I I love all of this. I agree with all of this. It's so amazing. So that's a useful start, but let's let's get down into yeah, the specifics. Then the, the, we just, let's just st- we, we the spend spend half an hour talking about how much we love Sarah Shulman. Yes, yeah. I think the to to go to the question of why I find it reparative, it is I think in so many ways just an antidote to so many of my frustrations and i think frustrations that you and i share about i mean i was going to i was going to say queer politics and i was going to say identity politics but in a lot of ways it's just politics yeah i think so uh, too online now and not just online but i think like that's kind of where it primarily manifests i find that space a, a really challenging space to be in a very confronting space to be in and and in large part because it doesn't feel productive it doesn't feel helpful it just feels like a bunch of people screaming at each other and conflict is not abuse both provides some really good tools for analyzing that i think but also provides some practical alternatives i mean it's a really deeply practical book she argues that what digital communication allows well it's two things it 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 disallows the reading of kind of visual cues and and so it's hard to kind of get a sense exactly of what someone means but it also allows people to it gives you the power to just like not respond to someone yep. and she argues that that is a, a a way of like asserting power over another person by oh it totally is yeah, by by just kind of literally like freezing them out, and she talks a lot about uh, shunning as a as a practice that that is a kind of response to the conflating of conflict and abuse. We're, we're diving into some specifics here, but maybe we need to talk a bit more about some of the core ideas. So yeah. we, we sort of outlined them briefly in the the opening, but I think her her main idea is that for a whole range of reasons that are i think exacerbated by digital communication i think i think largely but also just a kind of general cultural turn people have are increasingly feeling as though any form of conflict between them and another person is being reframed as a form of not just abuse but of violence yep. and we're increasingly kind of cur- encouraged to view people in terms of victims and abusers and she gives, like, I think one of the great things about the book is that she gives example, the examples she gives are really diverse. So she talks about uh, an example where, of like flirting with someone, where she was flirting with someone and then thought it was kind of going really well and then texted them and wanted to like meet up and the person seemed really keen and then they just kind of like shut off communication and didn't really give any explanation as to and what- ghosted her. Yeah, ghosted her, basically, and that that is a kind of example of where this kind of fear of conflict is escalated into... I mean, she has, she obviously didn't know what was going on in this, this other woman's head, but she uh, feared that she was being seen as, like, a sexual harasser, basically, yep. um, because that sort of pattern uh, is is established. But she also kind of draws links between that and, like, 
the shooting of African-Americans by police officers in the US as a situation where this kind of like racial conflict has come to be seen by those police officers as something that is so like the conflict itself is so terrifying that it causes them to respond with violence. Uh, and then the uh, on an even kind of higher level, she compares it to, she talks about uh, is- Israel and Palestine and that the kind of conflict there has been escalated by the government of Israel to the point where the um, the conflict over over dispossession of land and occupation and settlement in Palestine has been reframed as this kind of uh, abuse by the Palestinian people of Israel that needs to be responded to with violence. Yep, yep. Uh, so she, I think she has a really good job of, of framing this at all sorts of levels. And I think what I found valuable about it is the ability to engage with the question of what is conflict uh, versus what is abuse whilst also not necessarily uh, getting rid of the notion that there is abuse that exists in the world but it's it's not like it's she doesn't go all in in that kind of in, in certain the way that some people do and try to to, to do this she, to sort of uh, you know deny the existence of abuse or the existence of bad behavior uh, but she sort of reframes it and, and examines the way we can reframe it to sort of say well actually what we're doing is we're overemphasizing this 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 term of abuse um, and in turn you know she talks about you know this idea there's this this constant dichotomy that we really want to sort of create in the world, the sort of victims versus perpetrators dichotomy. And, and you can see this really strongly in, like, the the analysis of the Israel-Palestine debate where she sees how... She talks about how Israel, uh, the Israeli government, talks about themselves as being the victims um, very strongly as a way to then sort of be able to respond back to that and that the Palestinians are the perpetrators in this instance. And, you know, uh, and then it sort of then gets framed into the good versus bad uh, as well. So it's victims versus perpetrators and good versus bad. And I think mm. that we see so much of this... And I, and I think for me... Me, I mean, it's it's. I'm, I'm often interested in the big political stuff, but I think that for me, actually, what I really valued the most was the way that she brought it down to that sort of micro level, that individual relationships. And I think it's such a common thing that I see nowadays about the, you know, the the example that she said of the person that she was flirting with. Um, is such a like an example of something that I think that is so common throughout now where sort of social cues are missed or mistakes are made or things go slightly wrong uh, and people are, are labelled abusers or labelled creeps or labelled uh, bad guys or people we should cancel or all this kind of stuff. And it's it's just so common to see that happening now. And I don't think it just happens online. I think it happens uh, in real day-to-day life uh, for lots of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, one, of the, one of the passages that really sticks out to me that I find astonishing and really brave to write about and brave for her to have done, she talks in a passage about a young male graduate student she had that she says comes from a marginalised and oppressed community uh, and that uh, she said that one day that she learned that he had a blog where he wrote that he was in love with her and... You know, which is, uh, like, not a good thing. And But she talks about how all of her colleagues uh, sort of said that um, she that this guy was stalking her and that he was a creep and that she he, he really needed to stop and that obviously he needed to stop. I mean, that was the thing. But, she, you know, that they labelled her as stalking and that she should file a complaint and really uh, sort of go hard in this on this student. 
And what she did instead was to sort of approach him and talk to him, you know, made sure she did it in a, in a way that she was felt safe and comfortable uh, and engaged with him and told him why the behaviour was inappropriate, sort of realised that there were some cultural differences and some cultural uh, sort of breakdown in there. I feel like she was very careful not to say necessarily that the behaviour was inappropriate because she does kind of talk about, as I think you're about to say, the fact that there was a generational difference that meant that, you know, talking about his feelings on a blog was maybe something that she, as someone a little older, didn't understand, but was perhaps quite yep. normal for someone of his age. And the, the yep. way she framed the discussion with him wasn't to say what you've done is inappropriate, it was to say, I feel really uncomfortable about this. Yeah, so I think that's a good that's a good clarification. What was really valuable for me about that passage was the capacity to engage, to look at something that in... And in any circumstance today, I think uh, super creepy, super stalkery, super like abusive. And I think that that example is so valuable to me because I think that I, I can I can't see people doing it in the way she does. And I find these sorts of situations, these sorts of these sorts of arguments, are really valuable when you take them to the most difficult circumstances in some ways. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know, it's you know it's easy to talk about sort of the 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 difference of conflict when you think you're flirting with somebody and maybe maybe there's a breakdown of the flirting or they're just not interested anymore. And that's like a, it's a, like a sort of a, a starting approach for this. But I think to go to a situation where you have a student who is writing about how they love you on a blog and they're, you know, that, that, that situation is for some people I think would be more black and white in terms of this is a clear case of creepy, abusive behavior. Uh, and to, to, to apply her, arguments to this and to, to to approach this person i think in the end she said you know that she, he couldn't be a student of hers anymore because she felt very uncomfortable with it with it uh and but you know she didn't pursue sort of but she helped uh, him know, she, she helped him transition to another supervisor and yeah you know and she said that they now they now have a kind of amiable relationship i think i and i think the other kind of key thing about that story was that she talked about the ways that communities around people can really encourage that escalation so the fact that yeah. all of her colleagues encouraged her to to treat this as if it was abuse when it wasn't and that she kind of really had to go against what her community was encouraging her to do and and got a really uh, a positive outcome points to leads into discussions that she has about the the duty i suppose of of communities around a person in encouraging uh, constructive positive behavior because i think it's like she's also like quite clear to draw distinctions between conflict and abuse i mean it's literally the name of the the book obviously but in that story like you said you know what a lot of people would consider kind of abusive behavior she's very clear to say it's it's not abusive behavior like we need to be clear about yep. what abusive behavior actually looks like there's a whole chapter about some work that she did with a woman who's done a lot of work in relationship violence and in, in domestic violence. And I found that chapter really, really illustrative. This uh, this colleague of hers talks about the ways that social workers working in that space are trained to look at certain behaviours as abusive or to, to, like, kind of be always looking for the possibility of abuse in relationships and what often happens is they can kind of mistake often quite complex dynamics in which both people can play a role as just simple abuse when there there might be something much more complicated happening there and it's 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 a really kind of challenging section of the book because 
it goes against everything that we're told about how to think about relationship violence and violence against women in particular, that like we need to identify any possible harm and get people out of there and and really kind of be really cracking down on perpetrators and blah, 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 blah. This woman is saying that we need to be very clear about what abuse is and more importantly, what abuse isn't. And that kind of challenging relationships in which people treat each other very badly, like they might be very unhealthy relationships that someone shouldn't be in, yep, but it's yep. it's not helpful or useful to frame those dynamics as abuser and abused because it immediately shuts down the possibilities of how you can respond to that. So she talks about like trying to retrain social workers to to try to think about that distinction a bit more critically. And I think that's interesting because... I'm actually just reading Jess Hill's book, uh, See What You Made Me Do, which is about domestic abuse. Uh, and I've only just started it, but it's, it's super interesting so far. And I mean, she's she articulates very clearly real instances of domestic abuse. And I think that ones that nobody could really uh, deny were domestic abuse. Um, but I think what's interesting about the, the, the approach at which Sarah Schulman's taking here is that the the way in which we sort of increasingly label things as abuse has the potential to conflate that with the things that are really abuse and to, to like it sort of it almost diminishes in a way examples of what 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 you know of real systematic abuse that I mean you know in the case of domestic violence the real systematic abuse that that uh, that women uh, go through uh, and that it's actually the the distinction is important because you we want to be able to have a distinction between like identifying what is clearly instances of abuse that we can that we need to deal with and we need to deal with often criminally versus what is uh what are cases in which uh there is real conflict that exists and how we deal with that through different means and uh, what I what I've what I've liked about Jess Hill's book so far is that she deals with the complexity of that uh, quite well, I think. But I think that that distinction between conflict and abuse, and that, and again, it's a very difficult circumstance, right? It's one one of those ones where, you know, sometimes I think people would see those behaviours as being black and white. There's a passage where uh, she talks about the word violence and the ways that it's being taken to you to mean all sorts of other things now, and and Sarah. Uh, Sarah Shulman basically argues that we should restrict the use of the word violence to like literal physical violence and like oh my god yes uh, other other things where someone is just like putting someone in in very direct physical harm and that's not to say that mm. other behaviours aren't dangerous or even potentially abusive but that they're different like that emotional abuse for example. It's not that it's not bad, it's just that it's we lose a lot of the nuance in how it is bad when we just lump it in with violence. And I think that that's, uh, I think that that's true. I think that, you know, everything's fucking violence now, you know. Oh, yeah, everything. Like hate and, speech like, is violence, yeah, like, and I, you I, know, I was just being mean to someone is violence. The episode that we did uh, last week uh, about speech and you know and the the way that speech is now labelled as violence uh, and hate speech as violence and I find that super frustrating because I just don't I think it uh, it diminishes the term 
violence and it means that it becomes really hard to distinguish between this sort of real physical violence between things and between you know distinguishing between that and emotional abuse for example and distinguishing between that and and hate conflict. speech and yeah. conflict and then even distinguish between that and like mistakes that people make you know one of the things that i see so frequently is you know and i'm not saying that this is a nice thing and obviously it feels uh, terrible for people, but I think people talk about the misgendering of people as being violence. And sometimes the misgendering of people is deliberate and it might be uh, done deliberately to, to uh, have a go at someone or to diminish someone or whatever, and that is bad. Sometimes it's also a mistake that gets that happens uh, and maybe it might happen frequently and that is also not nice but it is definitely a mistake uh, but I think in uh, conflating that with some with, with with violence I think is not particularly helpful uh, and it sort of be, it diminishes no totally uh, it's it, it's you kind of lose the analytical power of well you lose any analytical power by just kind of like it flattens everything out I think intellectually to, to yep. just kind of call all these things the same thing. And I think, like, to... I, I spoke earlier about how deeply practical I found the book, and I think that that's true on a number of levels. I mean, she she uh, she goes through, like, literally a series of steps that communities can go through to yep. respond to instances where you believe that, you know, a close friend is, is engaging in escalating uh, conflict to abuse... To, to try to intervene in that. And I think, uh, I, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about what that yeah, looks I think like. But I also wanted to just bring up that a huge part of the book is a focus on personal responsibility. And it's fascinating because that is something that is so absent from identity-based politics now and feels almost taboo to talk about, to kind of go, if you're in a, conflict with some i mean it's so fucking straightforward it's like something that your parents tell you when you're a child and <laughs> and yet it's kind of lost in these debates that if you're in conflict with someone you have to take personal responsibility for both your role in that conflict and how you respond to that conflict and it's not it's not about blame it's not about you know figuring out like who's at fault it's that Unless you do that, you literally cannot move forward from it. Like, it is a necessary step to, to reparation, to, like, actual having, have, actually having practical responses. And I just found that super powerful. And I think that that, is, that really goes to this sort of dichotomy that she argues that exists in our society, between the perpetrator and the victim, and that... Uh, in instances of conflict, when we when we label them as perpetrator versus victim, uh, it becomes that the, the blame goes to one, or entirely onto one side. I don't even actually know. I, I think increasingly, it's not even expected that the perpetrator does any self. Uh, reflection or take responsibility because I think the perpetrator is immediately labelled as bad and unable to do that and they're, they're the best way to engage with that person is just to shun them, to cancel them, to push them out. There's no engagement of repair or or, or trying no, to repair it's relationships. The, it's not even on the table. Yeah, um, and the victim is entirely blameless in these situations. And you know, and I think sometimes that might be true. You know, that sometimes not true. But I think that again, well, it's well, about but that. this, but this is the thing. It's true in instances of like actual abuse. Yes, exactly. Well, well, yes, well, I'm saying, not, that's what I'm saying. Not but it is that distinction between conflict and abuse that, like, yeah, exactly. in instances yeah. of conflict, everybody involved has a responsibility to try yeah. to yeah. resolve things. Yeah. 
And if you go to look at, you know, stuff online, you know, as, a, as the example of stuff that's going on here, you know, most of those instances are, are instances of conflict when we see these debates, these screaming matches happen online. They're really instances of conflict. They're not instances of abuse. And I think that there's a, a desire to see yourself as complete for people to see themselves as completely blameless in those situations uh, when often people are deliberately escalating things or deliberately pushing buttons or not listening to the, to the views of other people or seeing even that the the existence of opposing views to their own equals an abusive position. Uh, and I think that is so common now when people like identity, identity folks engage with anybody from the right, anybody, any conservative at all, there's an immediate assumption that that person is being abusive, you know, that they want to deny people's identity and therefore that makes them abusers in some form. And maybe this goes into this next section that we want to talk about is the responsibility to engage in repair. Like the last chapter is titled The Duty of Repair. And I really like the title in itself because it it talks about that responsibility and it talks about repair. And I think the discussion of repair as being something that we should all be engaged in uh, and that we all have a duty toward is a really valuable um, a valuable approach to dealing with these sorts of questions and the, and the yeah, practical steps yeah. that we can make. This paradigm is so powerful that this it's not to say that any of this stuff is easy, you know, like it's, oh, it's not really hard. Totally. But you've, you've still got to try to do it. Like it's not, I'm not sitting here going like, and, and I, I, I certainly don't think Sarah, Sarah Shulman is saying this in the book that like, you know, if you feel abused when you have conflict with someone that's inherently a bad thing it's like no you just need to critic try to critically reflect on your own responses and hopefully have people around you that can help you do that and so i guess that kind of segues nicely into what the practical steps are she says that if if a friend of yours is responding in a way that you think is escalating uh, a conflict with someone else into a situation where they're talking about it as abuse. So I feel like the really, really common one, and it happens so much in queer communities, and she she uses a lot of examples in the book about like relationship breakdowns. Yep, yep. Uh, between mostly queer women, I guess, because that's the kind of communities that she, that she tends to be in. Yep. But talking about when there is a breakup of some kind, and one of the two people in the relationship frame the other person as like having really done horrible things to them and that caused the end of the relationship when it was just some sort of conflict between the two people. And that the first instance is that if you're a friend of that person, you should sit down with them face-to-face ideally or at least over the phone and try to encourage them to kind of talk about, okay, was there actually abuse going on here? Was it just conflict? If it was just conflict, are there other ways that they can redress that? Is it possible to reconcile with the other person? Um, What support do they need to do that? If that person then doesn't respond well to that, which is entirely possible, then you should go back to other shared friends and go and approach them as a group and try to do the same thing that way and say, look, we're all really worried about you and worried about the about your behavior and try to intervene together in that way as a kind of community and and talk about the impacts on the the group and 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 on the community itself. Uh yep. and so those are those are the basic steps basically that she outlines to try to kind of intervene in this. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Some of the really interesting stuff about this comes out in the chapter, chapter five called On Escalation. She uses non violent progressive political action and there's four steps that she says uh there's there's four kind of principles rather principles yeah four principles of of how uh to deal with this sort of situation and so there's the the principle one is scapegoat of people cannot be made to stand alone uh second number two is community needs to move towards negotiation number three is more and more people have to join in together to create change and number four the conversation is not over just because an escalator insists that it is and i think that is such a valuable there's such valuable principles and particularly you know the second one about community needs to move towards negotiation rather than rather than escalation and conflict being that being the framework but also the involvement of community i think is really important in this in this approach and i really like and i think that the, the most challenging one for i think for a lot of people is this one of the conversation is not over just because and yeah totally that it is because i think that is such a common refrain in progressive politics now uh, of or the person who feels like they're being abused is um, is saying you know I I can't deal with this anymore it's too much or they just need to stop we just need to get rid of them and that that the the response is to immediately uh, provide to 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 validate that and that's not necessarily always the best approach um, and I, and she talks later in this chapter about shunning as a thing that happens in a lot of these communities and that shunning really achieves nothing uh, and actually can be quite uh, detrimental in 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 any way that we deal with these sorts of things um you know she says that shunning is entirely unethical hypocritical and socially de- socially detrimental um and uh that it's it's a way to not actually deal with any of the root causes of the conflict not a way to deal with potentially even i think when it, when it is actually abuse it doesn't deal with any of the root causes of the abuse yeah for sure and just the fact that like this behavior is enabled by communities i think is really really important it's it's interesting there's this this section that that almost was like a slap in the face that but but in a kind of good way this this line kind of late in the book where she talks about how much she I think she said she's made afraid by the phrase chosen family within queer communities because she identifies the family as this space that is the kind of source of creating this paradigm, really. And that, like, we should be talking about friends as as kind of a healthy relationship because the idea of the family is, is people who will either uh, traumatize you or they will just back you no matter what. And either mm. of those are kind of quite toxic behaviors. We shouldn't have friends that we will back in any circumstance we should be creating 
and enabling relationships and communities where we hold each other accountable and that when that doesn't happen, it's it's really quite... The effects are really quite destructive. And I think that there's something to be said about that in the... the you know, and I've experienced this personally uh, in terms oh, of... I feel like... I feel like Everyone I know has experienced most of the stuff in this book personally. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think some form or another. there's some really interesting stuff about... There's a couple of really interesting things. So I've experienced this personally in terms of um, people who have done uh, bad things, I guess. You know, what I would consider really inappropriate things or really awful things, things that have hurt people really de- um, terribly. Accountability fre- in- increasingly seems to mean complete shunning or complete shutting out and I don't and I think that there's like this sort of huge space in between in which accountability well, can like, mean I lots of like other things a, I feel like that's a lack of accountability yeah you know? I totally agree and I think that it, it, it is a way that is detrimental both to the community as well as to the person who's uh, potentially the victim or potentially the perpet- and the perpetrator in these instances or just the people who are engaged in conflict in some way uh, and I think that there's a accountability can mean both so you know i think a good friend holds their friend to uh, to account a good partner holds their partner to account a good uh you know family member holds their family member to account and we do have a sort of a society that is that uh, or approach particularly i agree around family that assumes that you back people in 100% and i have seen this in personal circumstances where people have backed in their family to 100% to the detriment i, th- I think of themselves and the community in some ways so there's there's like a desire there's a need to have people held accountable but i think there's also some of the reasons that people don't hold each other to accountable nowadays is because there's an assumption that holding people accountable means shutting them out or means judging them entirely by that one behavior or that one instance of Mm. of things and that that now becomes who they are and i don't think that that is a particularly valuable approach either i think that there are a whole range of ways we can have we can keep people accountable in a way that doesn't shun them that doesn't shut them out uh, but that makes sure that that they shift that behavior or that they change well i mean surprise surprise it involves like actually engaging with people yes exactly talking to them i think like that so i'm aware that we've been talking for a while but i something it, and in fact, it was kind of the main thing I wanted to talk about about the book, and we we still haven't really touched on it. That this is this idea that she talks about, and I think it's really directly relevant to a lot of the kind of identity based stuff that we talk about a lot in this podcast. Is that she identifies? Uh, I think it's in that same chapter, the on escalation chapter. So two structures that produce this kind of escalation behavior are supremacy. So uh, whether that's uh, so take like kind of male supremacy as an example that that people confuse conflict with abuse because they are so used to existing within a structure of male supremacy that when that is challenged, it just freaks them out. So that's one. And the second one is trauma that. If you have a pattern, usually from childhood, of not receiving love or not receiving care or whatever, that can also cause you to escalate conflict to abuse because you, because your 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 patterns, I guess, are to like you have experienced actual abuse of one form or another, and so you read things that aren't abuse as abuse. It's very difficult for you to feel yep. safe. And what I found really kind of, it's it's a really uh, confronting idea in a lot of ways, but she basically argues that whilst those structures are very different, supremacy and trauma, the outcomes when it comes to this sort of behavior are virtually identical. 
that supremacy behavior looks very much like traumatized behavior. And that's a really confronting idea, I think, because of the ways that we do in, uh, you know, like, you know, new left sort of identity left politics, the whole basis of that politics really rests on being able to draw a distinction between people who engage in, people who benefit from supremacy structures and people who have been traumatized, that one is bad and one is good. But she's basically arguing that the behavior that they produce looks the same. And I feel like that is so, I find that so productive because, I don't know, I, I don't want to put words into a math, but I guess part of the way I read that is that like, Framing things in terms of whether you have a privileged or oppressed identity is not helpful. What is useful is kind of trying to intervene at the level of shitty behavior. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's kind of my takeaway from from that, at least. And I, I, I just find that so powerful because I think it goes to a lot of experiences that I've had in queer political spaces where I feel like, A, people whose identities are elevated within queer spaces because they can... It's the kind of oppression Olympics stuff, right? Because they can yep. demonstrate X, Y, Z oppression. Treat... have I've seen those people treat other people extremely, extremely badly. And oh, I feel like all the this time. all the time. And I feel like this provides a really interesting framework for understanding that behavior and for, for dealing with that behavior. And I think secondly, it kind of makes me examine my own experiences as someone who I think can, you know, I mean I don't want to go into things in detail now, but I think for various reasons can demonstrate traumatized behavior and have certainly done, I think, in at various points in my life, as I'm sure most of us have, some of the bad behavior that she describes in 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 her book. And it kind of makes me look at myself and kind of go, just like, God, I had this experience in at at, at work the other day where we had this kind of cultural competency training uh, around uh, just learning some basic stuff about Aboriginal communities in Australia and and the experiences of colonization and and just as as part of that, towards the end of the day, we were talking about that thing where you like you know people like stand on a line and you kind of take a step forward if you um, have never been abused on the basis of your race and then you take a step forward if you yep. you know that th- sort that yeah sort yeah of I know thing. what you mean yep. yeah the idea is that it's supposed to kind of indicate that like you know, oppression is intersectional and and uh, different people have, have had all sorts of different experiences. And they got to the end of that and people... Well, we didn't actually do it. Uh, <laughs> and I think I think if we were asked to do it, I probably would have refused because I, I think it's a, a shit... Like, it's a pretty shit thing to force someone to do in front of their colleagues. But yeah, I agree. part of that process, like, they were like, well, I mean, who tends to be the people who end up at the front? And the, my colleagues were like... I was the only man in the room. And my colleagues were like, well, people who look like Ben... You know, I didn't really respond to it because it was a work situation, but I was just like, fuck you, you know, like, you don't... You don't know what... You don't know me. You don't, you yeah. don't know... Yeah, you don't know me. You don't know what I've gone through, like... Yep. And I and I think it, it, it just kind of speaks to... Not that there's no value in that. Like, like, clearly, like, white supremacy is a thing. Clearly, like, male supremacy is a thing, right? But also, it's so unhelpful at the point of actual behavior and actual people's experience... Like, at some point, you just have to engage with things at the point of, like, how are people actually behaving in situations and yeah. how do people respond in situations? And I I just, I found conflict is not abuse really 
again, to, to, to use that word reparative for kind of understanding a lot of my own shame around feeling like I don't have a right to, like, as a white man, be anything other than someone who is a perpetrator yep, <laughs> and yep. is a potential abuser. And, uh, yeah, that focus on just behavior and, and focus on practical outcomes and focus on responsibility, uh, I found really powerful for that reason. Thank you for listening. We have a Patreon. If you'd like to sign up to our Patreon, please do. It's a great way to support the podcast. Uh, this is an insane amount of work for Simon and I, something that we've been kind of grappling with a bit at the moment is just how much time this all takes. So having that that little financial contribution from from listeners does genuinely help out. Uh, you can check it out there at uh, patreon.com slash queerspodcast. We also put a bunch of bonus content up there. We do a monthly bonus episode and we've been uh, writing short uh uh, mini essays, I guess, uh, for people to read on there as well. Uh, you can also contact us in many ways via the internet. Uh, you can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com. I always love it when we get emails. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at queerspodcast. We also have personal social media pages. Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. I'm on Twitter at Simon Copland and on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can check out our website to find uh, old episodes of the podcast or new episodes for that matter, which is queerspodcast.com. Uh, you can, can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, if you do so, leave us a, a good review and a nice rating, and that would be really helpful for us and help other people find the podcast. Also, tell a friend. Uh, as we always say, word of mouth is the best way, I reckon, to, to hear about good podcasts. Uh, so if you think that... Uh, someone you know might like this conversation. If you think someone you know might be uh, have just read Conflict is Not Abuse or, you know, is interested in the book, maybe tell them about the episode and maybe they'll really enjoy it. And finally, thank you as always to Lip Media, our, our podcast network friends. Uh, Lip has been really, really great and they provide a lot of support. And there's a really good, good and growing network of queer po- Australian podcasts on there. So go and check them out at lip.media. Thanks. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.